This is episode 117 of Off Script with Trish Glose, intimate interviews with interesting people. And I am thrilled to death. I have Chris Kimball joining me via Skype. Hi, Christopher Kimball. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. And if you don't know who this man is, you need to climb out from underneath your rock. This is Christopher Kimball with Milk Street. Um, absolutely love Milk Street. I want to talk a lot about that. But first, where are you from originally, Chris Kimball? I grew up in two places outside of New York City. I was actually born in New York City and then in Vermont. So in a very small 20 acres with a small cabin in Vermont. So we split our time between the two. Oh, man. You had the best of both worlds, really. I did. Uh, the Vermont life was very different than Westchester County outside of New York. I would say there was nothing in common at all. That's right. <laughs> People, surroundings, environment, nothing. Uh, housing. Yeah. <laughs> Shopping, everything was totally different, that's right. So growing up in the Vermont then, splitting your time there, was it more rural? It's a little town where I still have uh, actually a house, mm -hmm. uh, a town of a few hundred people, uh, extremely rural. Uh, I spent a lot of time on a farm milking cows and haying. I will never milk a cow again <laughs> as long as I live. I might hay. Uh, and it, people lived, uh, the people I worked for had an outhouse, no running water. It was a pump in the sink. Mm. Uh, they lived pretty much the way they had for hundreds of years. It was it was quite rural, yes. Yeah, that makes you um, really appreciate the finer things in life, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it makes you appreciate uh, uh, neighbors, sure. uh, companionship, storytelling. Uh, none of these people had any money at all. Mm -hmm. um, they probably made a few thousand dollars a year. Uh, but they were, I know this sounds silly and typical, archetypal, but they were very happy. They knew their land, they knew their community. Uh, it was a great antidote to <laughs> what the other life uh, was offering. Right? Sure. And I kind of know the answer to this question. Why will you never milk a cow again? Have you ever milked a cow? I haven't. Well, if you milk a cow, you will come to the same conclusion. <laughs> Well, you sit there and then you have to hold with one hand the tail so you don't get swatted in the face. Right. Milking. And uh, the gutter is right there with all the manure. And the barn I was working in was not the cleanest barn in the world. My, one of my jobs was to shovel the barn. So it was a mix of uh, milk and manure and flies and heat. Um, yeah, it's just you don't want to see where your milk comes from, okay. believe me. Sounds delicious. <laughs> At least not in those days. <laughs> uh, I love milk, milk. There's a total theme here. Did uh, Was food a big deal growing up in your house? Uh, yes, it was. I mean, I cooked from seven or eight years old. I got interested in baking in particular. I think most of my inspiration came from uh, the cook in Vermont who uh, sort of cooked for the community. Mm -hmm. She was a professional baker, but she also cooked dinner for everybody. And um, Anna Dama bread, molasses, cookies, apple pie, pot roast, baking powder, biscuits. And if you walked into that little house uh, any time of the day, you get a slice of bread, homemade bread, mm. and you get, um, uh, you know, butter, a big thick schmear of butter on it, and maybe a donut. She made great donuts. So I ate with the farmers at noon. We'd eat dinner at noon. And, um, you know, I remember, for example, when they opened up a, a, a baked potato. They would do it with their fist. They go boom like this and just open it up, you know. Yeah. So uh, food for me had a context of 
people, you know, the, the work hands, the farm hands, the farmers. It was about the community. Um, yeah. And I, I would say for Vermonters, food was fuel. I mean, I, they didn't sit there and talk about, gee, the apple pie was really good today. There was no foodie talk, but it was deeply appreciated. So it was it was a silent but deeply appreciative, appreciative audience for the food. So that's that was my inspiration. My grandmother, I grew up in the South, in South Carolina. My grandmother could take a baked potato and she would slice it open for me and with her bare hands just do that like mush thing where the whole thing yeah. comes out with bare hands. Well, the hands of people who work on farms, if yeah. you go to farmer's market today, you can look at their hands and that'll tell you whether they just came up from New York or they've been doing it a while because the real farmer hands are impervious. It's like a real chef, right? I mean, if you've been working in a line for 20 years, your hands are pretty tough, right? So did you, from an early age, know that this was going to be your path? Food, kitchen, cooking? Uh, well, no, I went I went through the fireman thing. Uh, for a long time, I wanted to be a lawyer, which was like really stupid. I mean, I don't know where I got that from. I like to argue, maybe that's why I love arguing. Well. So uh, no, I got rid of that. Uh, my passion was always cooking. And then I, out of college, I worked, uh, I was an art history major. I worked at the Museum of Natural History on Wednesday afternoons. So I got interested in art. Uh, and then I was in publishing for a couple of years after college in the 70s in Manhattan. Uh, and so I put publishing, you know, magazines together with food. And that's how I ended up launching Cook's Magazine in 1980. So it was uh, two things I love. I love publishing mm -hmm. and I love food. So it goes together. And that you can see that now in, in everything that you're doing with cookbooks and Milk Street. Um, I want to read something really quickly. This was I found this on your website. We think of recipes as belonging to a people and place, outsiders or interlopers. Milk Street offers the opposite, an invitation to the cooks of the world to sit at the same table. Is the whole idea for you to break this down and that it's not, it's not this overwhelming, crazy thing to cook a meal for people? Yeah, I think um, when, I, when I started cooking seriously in the 70s, mm -hmm. We looked at uh, cooking from other places in the world as being quote unquote ethnic cooking, a term I don't like very much. Um, and it was like Saturday night cooking and it was complicated stuff. It was a sort of a gourmet club food. Um, having traveled around the world a lot now, I realized that everyone's doing the same thing. They're getting dinner on the table and most people do it fairly quickly and efficiently uh, with a lot, not a lot of ingredients. And so uh, they just, think about food differently than I do or I did uh, because they have different kinds of ingredients. So to make a long story short, it's not about time, right? It, it's not about complexity. It's about understanding food and putting it together in a way that makes sense for you. So I don't want cooking to be viewed as something you need to do for 20 years and go to cooking school and apprentice at a restaurant. I want it to be something that anybody can do because it's fun and it's not that hard. And uh, it doesn't have to be perfect. So I want to take the mystery out of it. I don't want to take the idea that you have to be a, a cooking school attender to, to turn out good food. You don't. So I want to simplify it. When did you have that sort of aha moment that this isn't, this isn't rocket science? Um, I think when, when I cook with, uh, well, recently I had a, a, a confirmation of this. I was in Mexico City with Eduardo Garcia, who has a well-known restaurant there. He took me out on a barge, a boat, in these canals in Southern Mexico City, uh, which are built originally by the Aztecs. 
We went to a Chinampas, which is a floating island, uh, not floating anymore, but an island, <laughs> and we cooked beans. Now, I traveled 7,000 miles to cook beans with somebody. The beans were terrific. They were meaty. They were delicious. I learned all sorts of things about cooking. And I'm thinking like, okay, well, you know, something as simple as beans can be as good as any re restaurant meal I've had in Paris, right? It was fabulous. So simplicity can is really the, the holy grail of cooking. Mm -hmm. It's not about complexity. It's about taking something and doing it right and doing it simply. And then I realized what he was doing is very similar to the person in Chiang Mai in Thailand or the person uh, in Taipei or the person in Ho Chi Minh City or the person in Dakar. It's all the same thing. Right. You know, I walk into a, uh, for example, a, um, a, uh, someone's uh, home in Dakar a couple of years ago and it looked like a suburban New Jersey kitchen, right? I mean, it was exactly the same. Uh, the food was different, but her approach to cooking, you know, she was cooking dinner. So our idea of what the rest of the world like is so wrong. It's not that different. Um, you know, you can go to Italy in, in Istanbul. You know, some people in, uh, you know, in, in Saigon probably like to go out for Italian food. So it's, it's not this mysterious uh, world. It's a world where everything has a lot in common and you can sit down and talk to anybody about cooking. You know, I've never met somebody I didn't like when I'm talking about food. Everyone's welcoming, everyone invites you in. Uh, sometimes it's very emotional, but you know, you can be in Oaxaca, you can be uh, in Greece. It's really the same conversation. For sure, 100%. Do you find though that there are those people who have no interest in food, they're just, you know, just give me this. And I can't have conversations with those people because I'm super passionate about food as well. And to me, it's something that when you start talking with someone about cooking and food and, and you know, this biscuit or this steak that I had, there's something there, you connect with those people. Do you find that there are people where you have conversations with that aren't interested in food and then you kind of get them excited about it? Well, I, I still spend a lot of time in Vermont. I would say Vermonters as a group don't talk about food much. Right. Uh, but, but we can talk about cows. <laughs> um, yeah, I do find it odd. What, what I find odd is there are people who don't really care about food. Right. A lot of, and that's because when I was growing up, uh, a little older, food was sold as, an, as being inconvenient. Mm-hmm cooking was inconvenient. Mm -hmm. And this is a notion that's been going on for at least 100 years. So the notion of inconvenience is, is why people don't like food. They think it's something, if they didn't have to cook, they wouldn't. Right. And it, but, but what's happening now, I think, and my point is, it's not just the food, it's the cooking, right? It's, it's the process of putting food on the table that's as rewarding as the food itself. And so I don't understand when people will do everything they can to avoid cooking because it would be like, you know, avoiding having a cocktail or <laughs> avoid going for a walk or avoid be taking time with your family. It's just an immensely enjoyable if you don't make it too complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, the simplest thing can get dinner on the table. So there's an enjoyment of the process, not just the food. And I don't understand people who, who think it's something to be avoided at all costs uh, because it's something that should be enjoyable. It, sh it should be part of the experience. I couldn't agree with you more. I want to back up just a little bit. Where did the inspiration for Milk Street come from? Well, for most of my life, I had been cooking New England style food or what people used to refer to as American food. Mm -hmm. 
that's a loaded term, but I, I, you know, essentially Northern European food, right? I mean, that's what I grew up with in my part of the country. And I love it to this day, but, you know, I, I couldn't write another article about how to make an oatmeal cookie. I mean, I've done that like 10 times already. So when I started traveling, I realized that it's not just the food was different, but that uh, people's conception and approach to cooking was different. So uh, that's what, what was the inspiration was there's actually a different way to think about cooking um, and think about putting ingredients together or what kind of ingredients go together. It's a whole different mindset. So it's not just a function of the recipes are different. It's the, the approach is different. And then I started realizing that most of what I knew or, or thought about cooking wasn't wrong, but it was a tiny little percentage. It's like if you've been listening, I'm a big deadhead, right? So if you listen to nothing about the Grateful Dead all the time like I do, you kind of miss out like there's another world of music out there, you know? So it's the same thing. Like I, I love New England cooking, but it's such a tiny percentage of, of the rest of the world's approach. For example, Northern European cooking is about time and temperature and technique. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you take fairly boring ingredients like root vegetables and meat and flour, and you turn them into wonderful things. The rest of the world use spices. French cooking almost never uses spices. French cooking doesn't use fermented sauces. French, uh, French cooking doesn't use many fresh herbs. They use a few, but not handfuls. So the rest of the world starts with all these really bright, flavorful ingredients. And so they don't have to go through the same process you do in France, which is long amount of time and a long, a lot right. of technique. That frees you up to enjoy the cooking because the cooking itself isn't that hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if you if you learn sweet and sour go together, or crunchy and smooth go together, or or bitter, which is a very important uh, flavor in most places in the world, which we don't use here much, bitter is actually really interesting if you if you use it in modest amounts. So it's this whole other way of thinking about like music, like food. It's this is totally different. It's weird. I've had a few deadheads on this podcast. I must just seek you guys out and find you and put you up here. So Milk Street came about as this way to educate, teach? Yeah, I just felt that the world was uh, at a watershed moment, the culinary world, where we were about to put aside sort of what we had been doing. You know, the settlement cookbook, Fannie Farmer. I mean, our cooking is very similar to Fannie Farmer was in 1896. I mean, it's, it's updated, but a lot of the things are very similar. I realized that the world was about to change. If you look at architecture, if you look at fashion, if you look at photography, you look at music, you know, the world, it's, you know, it's all over the world. It's all coming together. And food was doing the same thing. So you're going to get an, an influence from Morocco, get an influence from Vietnam, you get an influence from an island in Greece. And all those things are going to come together and people are going to throw this up in the air and do something new with it and exciting with it. And that's where I wanted to be was at that moment when we really rethought what is cooking and how to cook because the last place it changed was, is going to be the home kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, restaurants have been doing this for a long time. TV shows have been doing this for a long time. But the home cook is the last person to make that change. And the home cook is making the change now. You know, people were scared off by fish sauce, you know, 10 years ago or pomegranate. You look like you're still scared. Fish sauce? I love fish sauce. I use it a lot. But I mean, you have to warn people, right? Like, hey, if you're going to make curry right. and you're going to put fish sauce in it, it's, stink it's stinky. It's real stinky. 
Well, if, if you get a good one, it actually has, it's just umami. It does, it does, it's not really fishy. So pomegranate molasses, different kinds of spices, sitar, you know, sumac, mm. et cetera. And, and, you know, if I said this 10 years ago, people would be going like, you know, I'm out of here. I, what are you talking about? If you say sitar today, or you say pomegranate molasses, you say fish sauce or oyster sauce, people, or miso, or whatever you mm -hmm. want to talk about, people know what you're talking about. And so you can get all this stuff in 24 hours, and it's not expensive. Having the right pantry with just a few things is a game changer because it allows you to short circuit a lot of the cooking. A lot of my friends who don't cook, you know, when I have them over for dinner, they're like, oh, this is so good. What did you do differently? What's the main mistake home cooks make? I think I know the answer, but I want to hear from you. How long is the show? Do we have? This is a big topic here. Um, well, the first thing is 70% of all home cooks never sharpen their kitchen knives. Okay, that wasn't what so I was going to say. It's like you're going to kill yourself and you'll hate cooking because it takes forever to chop an onion, right? Uh, number two, they don't use enough heat in the pan. Okay. Their pans are heated enough, so you put the meat in it and it just steams. It doesn't really, you know, saute. You don't get the Maillard reaction, the, the chemical changes. Third, they don't use enough salt. Um, and then the fourth is before you serve a dish, like a stew or soup or, or a skillet dish, taste it. And if you just adjust flavors a little bit, you can add a little fresh garlic or ginger or vinegar or something sweet uh, uh, just or a little bit more salt or something else. You can immensely change the, the mm -hmm. pleasure aspect of that dish by adjusting it at the end. People don't taste. They just follow the recipe. Well, there's no such thing as the perfect recipe, right? So you, you might be using a different salt than I do. Am I salt salty or less salty than yours? Sure. You might have used a, you know, different kind of tomatoes. You might have used a different kind of meat. So taste it before you serve it. Uh, and the final thing is uh, never tell people what it is you're serving them. So if it doesn't turn out right, you can make up something that sounds good. That's brilliant. I've never thought of that. That's brilliant. Um, and you're right. There's nothing more frustrating than cutting a tomato with a dull knife. I mean, well, it's not just frustrating, it's just dangerous. I mean, I, true. if you watch someone even here, sometimes I watch someone with a knife. Uh, if you don't know how to use a knife, it's going to take you five times longer. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and there will be blood, you know, if you don't do it right. So uh, that's why people use serrated knives. People use serrated knives in the kitchen for everything because their knives are dull. So I, yeah. the, the one part of French cooking I really agree with is there's just basic knife techniques are a game changer. If you're if you know how to use a knife, prep's easy. You go through it quickly. You can get to the cooking. The cooking's the fun part. Mm -hmm. The prep, I enjoy prep too. But that's that's where all the time is. You got to find something. You got to cut it up. You know. Yeah. That takes a lot of time. And on these TV shows, even including ours, you know, you very often start with everything prepped, right? Well, that was ninety percent of the work right there. What <laughs> right. cooking? so easy you just throw in the pan yeah but you had to get those six ingredients or those ten ingredients you had to find them you had to shop for them you had to cut, cut them up and measure them so getting be, being reasonably proficient with the prep mm -hmm. is is important i make my husband do all the prep work in the kitchen it's a brilliant uh, thing he preps i i cook and then he cleans actually i mean it's ridiculous how has milk street changed, evolved in the last, let's just go last decade. And I also want to say Milk Street, it's named for its location, right? 177 Milk Street in Boston. 
uh, my wife, who also produces our TV and radio shows, yeah, we, we had an argument about what to call it. Uh, I was going to call it something really ridiculous, like Christopher Kimball's Kitchen or something really <laughs> egotistical and stupid. And she said, uh, well, wait a minute, where's our office? I said, Milk Street. She said, well, that's the name. And I said, who would call anything by the name of the street? And she said, have you heard of Sesame Street? Oh, that's brilliant. So I said, I said, I look like Big Bird, I guess. I don't know. But that's, uh, that's fine. Yeah. So that's uh, we call it Milk Street because we're on Milk Street. Yeah. Brilliant. How has, how have you seen it evolve in the last decade? We've only been around actually since for four years now. Um, mm. But uh, it has changed. Uh, we've realized that um, in my other uh, incarnation, you know, I was m more portrayed as the expert. And now the big change for us is we are the students because the experts are the people we meet on the road. Right. So I mentioned Eduardo Garcia in Mexico City. You know, he he's the expert, not me. So I'm going to learn from him. So it's really about the people we meet on the road who are who are the font of the information. We're just translators, really. You know, like Julia Child, mm -hmm. um, you know, the recipes came from Simone Beck, right, one of her partners in the book. She was translating those recipes for an American audience. So our job is to make sure those recipes work here. But we're not we're not the experts. And so letting other people speak for themselves is really the change we've gone through at Milk Street. It's their voice you want to hear, not so much my voice. Well, and you would see Julia Child would do that all the time, bring in experts to show her how to make, you know, a, a stew or a pie or something like that. She would bring those people in and say, you show me how, you show me how you make this risotto because you do it all the time and I don't. Yeah, she did that in a lot of her later shows. Mm -hmm. She'd also have guests on, like Baking with Julia. Um, but I like when Jacques Pepin, they did those shows together. And Jacques, who's a consummate chef, you know, he used to cook, you know, for Charles de Gaulle in, in Paris. Uh, he always would do it perfectly. And then Julia would kind of mess it up a little bit. And they and, and he would sort of give her a hard time, but in a very nice French way. So I, I, I thought that tension between Julia and Jacques was, was great. Uh, because, you know, Jacques clearly has amazing kitchen skills. Mm -hmm. And Julia was a great cook, but not at the level of Jacques Pepin, who was, you know, you know, he'd been doing this all. He started at age 16 in Lyon, you know, uh, apprenticing in a restaurant. So he he had the background. So watching the two of them together, I think, was absolutely fabulous. It was also charming, too, because then you see her version isn't as perfect. And that makes you at home feel a little bit better, like, right. oh, I don't have to be perfect. Well, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that was her great uh, magic, right? Uh -huh. That people looked at Julia and, and they felt comfortable with her and didn't feel like they were dealing with a five-star chef or four-star chef. And, and that, that ability to reach out and touch people through the television was her great strength as an educator because you felt comfortable with her. Uh, and, and by the way, I, I know from her producer, she never dropped a chicken on the floor in case you're wondering. Uh, that, <laughs> That's an urban legend. I'm sorry, never happened. So, never happened. But people thought it happened because it would be so typical of Julia mm -hmm. to do something like that, uh, because that was her charm, right? A thousand percent. Have you ever dropped a chicken on the floor? Of course, okay. I've done all sorts. I mean, hundreds of times I've made terrible mistakes in the kitchen. I think, you know, fear of cooking is is why people don't cook, mm -hmm. uh, and I think you just have to get over it because everyone messes up. You know, I, I've cooked with lots of chefs and. They make mistakes too, so 
who cares? As I said, just don't tell people what they're eating <laughs> until you're sure it's turned out okay. That's how you deal with it. That's my new favorite trick. I love it. What What is a big faux pas you've made in the kitchen? One that really sticks out to you, where you just, your heart sank? Uh, well, the, uh, the one that it was the most dangerous was I had a magazine crew uh, at my house in Vermont years ago, and I made a blueberry peach tart. And they came in the morning, they were to shoot a lunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, I put it in the oven, and it slid off the back, and the whole thing collapsed onto the floor of the oven. So I said, well, that, that, was, a bad, <laughs> that, that was a bad moment. So I said, uh, look, maybe you guys wanna go outside and uh, we'll get you some iced tea or something, a cup of coffee. In 10 minutes, I recreated that tart from scratch, making the pie dough. I mean, I just went through it. But I didn't have any blueberries. I just had peaches left. So I made a peach tart. And when it came out, and they, the photographer was there and the editor, they said, wasn't this a blueberry peach tart? I said, no, it was just a peach tart. <laughs> so, so I had to quickly make it up. So I recovered. But one of my favorite stories, though, was Sarah Moulton, who's my co-host on my radio show. She worked at uh, La Tulipe in New York. She worked with Julia Child and Jacques Pepin and some others. She made a souffle for a class we had here at Milk Street. And um, by mistake, she used salt instead of sugar oh, for no. the whole thing. So, and I, and I, I didn't want to say anything because she'd already added it and I was standing next to her. It came out of the oven absolutely perfect. You can make a gorgeous souffle with salt instead of sugar. It's just when you taste it. So I didn't want to say anything. She took a bite and spit it out and said, and you know, it was great about Sarah was she told the audience, you know, she didn't, she, she could have said, this tastes great. She said, no, I, I use salt instead of sugar. So, you know, and everyone loved it. It was a great moment. And the, and the last one is, I was on the Today Show years ago, almost burned down the kitchen. And oh. uh, yeah, well, I, I was doing a marshmallow, uh, you know, like Rice Krispie Treat recipe. And I moved, uh, I turned the heat off on the pan. I went on to do something else. And I'd actually turned it on high oh, no. instead of turning it off because I wasn't familiar with the controls. And smoke, it's a great segment. You can, the smoke keeps coming in from the side of the screen. And the cameraman kept edging, cheating the camera right. over. So could, but it, it got so bad that the host finally said, I, I think I think we have a fire here in the kitchen. <laughs> so so after that segment, I thought it would be my last. The oh. producer came up and said, that was your best segment ever. Because it was entertaining. You know, it's like, so anyway. And it's real, right? It's it real. real. It was real. I, as a matter of fact, I ran into um, uh, someone recently on the show and Al Roker, uh, actually, and I said, Al, you remember that time? He said, don't tell me. I know the time you almost burned down the kitchen of the Today Show. Yeah, I remember. We all remember. So I said, thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, <laughs> you're unforgettable. I'd much rather be that than anything else. Um, I, I do want to talk about your cookbook, but before we do that, it's called Cookish. Throw it together, your new cookbook. Um, before we get to that, though, what do you think it is? And you may have sort of already answered this, but what is it about food and a kitchen? I know growing up in South Carolina, that's where we all congregated. I mean, it was my grandma's kitchen when we were all together. And to this day, when we're all together, we're all in the kitchen, eating, drinking, laughing, and cooking. Well, I think, I don't think that was true when I grew up in the 50s and 60s. I think the kitchen was, 
you know, sort of like a summer kitchen. It was the thing out back you didn't go into very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's totally changed now um, for a whole variety of reasons, um, which I think is a good thing. But I, I sort of, with, with a family there, I like everybody in the kitchen. But if we have people over someday, um, the the notion that everybody comes in the kitchen, I, I, I'm, I'm more like Julia Child. And I would think like, okay, uh, I'll cook, but could you guys just go out and sit down somewhere else? Because you know what happens? People come into my kitchen and they open the pots and they taste things and they look. Mm. And I'm just going like, could you just don't look, I'll take care of the food. I want you to sit down, have a cocktail or a glass of wine, enjoy yourself. Uh, and I'll worry about the food. But I, I do think the kitchen, uh, you know, it has a lot of things. Uh, pleasure with the food. It's a place where there's a lot of activity. It's a place that's warm, which mm-hmm. was a big deal in the old days. Uh, and it's a place that is not formal. You know, I don't. M- most people don't have formal living rooms anymore, but the kitchen is an informal place. And also it's usually small enough to be intimate, right? I mean, there's an intimacy to spaces. If you look at old houses, I have a very old house in Vermont. It was all designed with a human scale in mind. They really thought about where the doors go. And everything. so a kitchen's very much uh, an old time design because it's just big enough to hold people, but it's small enough to have an intimate conversation with people. Whereas today, if you look at a lot of houses, the family rooms or the living rooms or whatever, they're kind of big and ungainly and it's really not pleasant to spend time there. The kitchen's always a great place to spend time because it's, it makes it an intimate experience. Interesting. I, I'm a bit of a, when you said that about the kitchen and you want, you kind of shoo people out, I'm a control freak when, it, when I'm cooking. I don't want anyone helping me because usually they don't do it the way I would do it. Are you the same way? Are you a control freak? Yeah, we, we, yeah well, I, we probably should never cook together because we don't want anyone to cook with. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't like this idea of I'll do part of the recipe and you do part. No. No, that's, a, that's, that's divorce. That doesn't <laughs> work. You, you got to like, I'll make this recipe, you make that recipe. And I also, I don't want anybody in the room with me. I know I'm showing my true colors here, but okay. I don't want anyone in the kitchen with me. I want to listen to my music, whatever that may be. Um, I, and I like a lot of time. I always allot twice as much time as I think I need because then I, I can enjoy the cooking. I don't have to worry about getting it done by five o'clock. I do all my cooking for on the weekends. I try to do it in the early afternoon or in the morning so I have time. Mm-hmm. I just love that process, not not having to rush through the cooking like you do during the week. So, no, I, I don't want, um, you know, I, I don't need a sous chef. And, and I'm happy to do the dishes, too. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll clean up after myself. Uh, I just want to be alone and cook because that, that's how I really enjoy it. I think it's a solitary. For a lot of people today, it's the opposite, right? People come mm-hmm. together, have parties. They all cook together. No, I, if you have a party like that, don't invite me because that's... <laughs> I won't be, I'm the wrong guest for that party. Chris won't be helping in the kitchen. I I agree with you, especially when it comes to certain things, how you want them chopped, like an onion, for instance. And someone's like, you know, I'll help. I'm like, no, I I got it. You sit, have a glass of wine. You watch me chop the onion. I got it. Well, I'm so crazy. I even get upset about the way people load a dishwasher. So, you know, I I, I definitely have definite opinions about how to load a dishwasher, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, how the plates go, how the silverware yeah. Do you put all the all the big forks together in one little place and all the spoons together? Do you do that? Uh, well, our, our dishwasher, they lie down horizontally, but it, oh. it's really how do you get the most amount of stuff in a dishwasher 
and still make sure it's clean and organized. I mean, it's uh, th that'll be my next book. Right. This is ah. good. We could talk about this for a really long time, but we won't. Um, let's talk about this cookbook, Cookish. Throw it together. Where'd the inspiration come from this? Well, it's it comes from what we talked about, which is that cooking, if you use the right ingredients and the mm -hmm. right combination of ingredients, doesn't have to be time consuming or difficult or have a lot of ingredients, right? I mean, you know, if you start with a soy sauce or you start with uh, miso or if you start with uh, Aleppo pepper or whatever you're going to use, you you don't need to develop flavor. You already have flavor. Like stir fried rice is a great example, right? Okay. You do a thousand variations. You start with a little bit of pork or something. Uh, you have the seasonings, you have the soy sauce, whatever you have. You, you can make that in five minutes, and it's you know six ingredients, and it's endlessly variable. So that's where it came from. It came from if you really are a good cook. You don't need a lot of ingredients. You just need the, re the right ones in the right order. Um, and you can have bright, fresh, big flavors quickly. So the, it, it was a very hard book to do, though, because 10 or 12 ingredients, it's pretty easy to create a stew, right? I mean, mm -hmm. almost anybody could write a stew recipe. But if you only have six ingredients, you've got to really be on your game because you, you got to get them in the right proportion. So it's just really interesting if you get two or three ingredients together that you don't think about together. For example, you know, lemon and pasta, for example, which is not uncommon in Italy. But, you know, lemon and pecorino and pasta and some oil, well, that's kind of interesting. So uh, putting a gochujang in with a simple pork dish, for example, four ingredients. It's the best pulled pork in the world. Uh, just throw in some gochujang. So it, it was a hard book to do, but it was it's sort of our holy grail for us, which is few ingredients in a short amount of cooking time most of the time. Right. And I've even seen that with Milk Street. And that's why I love it so much, because everything's so simple. There's just a, a few ingredients there, maybe a cast iron skillet, and you guys are good to go. I mean, it's just really simple. Yeah, I, I, we did a book on um, Instant Pot cooking mm -hmm. recently, too, uh, which I was not a fan of before we did it. Why is that? I pull it out. Well, why well, I, I you know, I just thought it was kind of a gimmick, but it turns out actually that uh, it's a way of organizing your cooking. So my point only is that it's it's very simple uh, and you can get, you know, you can get pulled pork in half an hour. So I, I'm, I'm all for using those techniques or tricks or appliances if, if you need them. But simplicity and, and great food can go together. And I was taught all my life, they don't go together. Something quick and simple just isn't going to be that good compared to something that's complicated and takes a lot of time. And that's not true. I mean, they're, they're, the bunch of great recipes, like a coffee of duck or something, which is going to take you time. Right. But plenty of other recipes that don't take time that are just as good. I also find, too, those projects are fun. If you like to cook, if you like to be in the kitchen, you know, duck confit can be fun to make on a Saturday when you have all sorts of time or Italian meatballs that are going to take you half a day. But at the same time, I agree with you, Monday through Friday, I want something that's just a handful of ingredients that's super fresh and simple and easy to put on the table. Yeah, I think the revelation for me was there's nothing embarrassing about quick and easy. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing necessarily inherently bad about it either. I mean, if you go back and look over the years, a lot of people did five ingredient cookbooks. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I, my feeling was they were putting mustard on chicken parts and baking them in the oven for an hour. Yeah, they weren't great books in general. Um, 
but it doesn't mean the concept's flawed. It just means those that approach was a very classic American approach to cooking. You have to completely change your cooking style to make that work, I think. Uh, book comes out mid-October, so that's yep. super exciting. And do you find that at this point in your life, it seems to me, just outside looking in, you're all about education and kind of rolling with it and evolving as this world of food and cooking evolves with us. And so, you know, I love that idea that you never stop learning when it comes to this. I love it when people preface a question by saying at this point in your life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I feel like, what? who is that? Is that the ambulance? I meant, you know I mean? I meant because you have been doing this so long. I, know, I mean, I, you know, like you, you've just been. Uh, well, you know, this is, uh, I've told this story many times, but people have come up to me over the years, like at a book signing or whatever. And, uh, they, they have tears in their eyes because not because I was so great, but because they are now a better cook. Right. So being, being a good cook is a big deal for people. It's one of the last things you can really do, you know, make with your hands anymore. Um, it's something that's very personal. It's about other people. You're doing things for the people. I know that sounds kind of silly, but mm -hmm. uh, it's a very big deal for people. Um, but on the other hand, I'll tell you a story. I was in a store in Portland, Maine. I have some in-laws that live up there and a couple years ago. And we were, my wife and I were in a store and someone came up and uh, to say hello. And my wife said, oh, and she had a camera. Would you like a picture with Chris? And she said, no, why would I want a picture with Chris? So I just like, which I loved. I thought that was the best answer ever. It's like, why would I want a picture with this guy? So uh, on one hand, you can influence a lot of people, you know. Uh, and the other hand, you know, don't let it go to your head. You know, you just you're just teaching them to make a better cookie or a better soup. Uh, but it's important. It's important to be good at it because it's one of the things you can be good at. Perfect. Does your wife cook? Uh oh, is this just is curious? This being broadcast nationally, I am I in trouble? Um, no, she's a very good cook. She she does fabulous salads. I mean, she loves light fresh foods and her salads are much better than mine she does a great job with that mm -hmm. someday she should do a salad cookbook uh but she's um she eats sparingly let me put it like that um like pork is not high in her list of foods and for me it's on the top five mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so yeah but, but she's very good when it comes to vegetables and salads and the healthy stuff uh, mm -hmm. which i like too but that I means like pork. that means you guys are a good match right uh, if we were putting together a menu, yes, it would be absolutely perfect. If I'm cooking dinner on a Tuesday night and I'm not making a salad, it's not so good. <laughs> Here's this plate of pork, honey. Uh, yeah. I love it. I also love that you you have, I mean, that's, you know, chefs and cooks are sort of my heroes. That's who I look up to because it is my passion. But it's true. You guys have changed the lives of people who were afraid to get in the kitchen or maybe love to get in the kitchen and you just inspired them to cook in a different way. Um, so I agree with that. And I, I love the fact that people meet you and get emotional over that. I think that's amazing. Well, one of my theories about American culture is you just have to last long enough. Sort of like Mickey Mouse just made it through <laughs> decade after decade. So uh, there is something to be said for just, you know, standing up for 40 years and doing it. Uh, but it is, it is gratifying because mm -hmm. it does, it really does change your life when you learn how to cook. 
I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, as I said, that sounds, you know, whatever, Mm-mm. but it's true. Uh, and it's nice to know that people now enjoy their lives a little more if they can cook better. Well, you know, we're, we're not saving the world from whatever, right? but it's, you know, it's something. Put it's it comfort. Down. It's comfort to me. And there's nothing like cooking something like, you know, collard greens for someone who's never had collard greens and they just go, oh my gosh, this is so good. I don't think there's any better satisfaction than hearing that at your table. Especially if you don't cook them al dente, yeah. Right. Yes. Just cook them a long time. Uh huh. Yeah. Cook <laughs> with, with pork product. Yeah. Yes, always with pork product. Yes. Yeah. My my grandma would say, just cook the snot out of it, and it'll be fine. Um, Chris, you're funny. I knew you were funny, but I didn't know you were this funny. You're very funny. Just saying. Uh, it depends who you ask. Well, if you ask all my, if you ask the people who work for me, <laughs> I'm not. Sure funny the thing they would say first but maybe they get oh that's all right they're not supposed to think you're that funny but you know you are funny i want to wrap up and get to the final three questions um best advice you've ever been given uh my my grandmother who lived in a very formal house in washington gave me two pieces of advice she said buy antiques and wash your fruit and this is when I was seven years old and she took me, sat me down for the talk. And that, that was all she had to communicate to me. That was her, nothing else, you know, like, like be true to yourself, you know, right. be kind, you know, be thoughtful, uh, do one to others. No, it was wash your fruit and buy antiques. And two things I still do to this day. So. Buy antiques, was there, is there any reason well, why? Her, her point was don't buy, you know, you're not supposed to buy new furniture, you're supposed to buy antiques. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, if I only had two pieces of advice to give to my kids, I don't think those would be the two things I would go to first. I was all prepared for like this emotional moment where you were talking about your grandmother and this connection and she was going to give you this advice that you've carried with her. Not not my grandmother. No, she was about four foot ten. She was the terror of Washington. (laughs) She was, uh, yeah, she was really something. So now I know no heartfelt moments with with my mother's mother now. Uh, but wash your fruit, that's important. I wash all my fruit. Yeah. Well, oh. you, you would have liked her. <laughs> Great, we would have gotten along, I love that. Uh, what's your happy place? What's your happy place? Uh, my happy place is Vermont. I've been there since 1955 off and on. Uh, I've hunted in the same mountains, fished the same streams, know the same people. Uh, as soon as I cross the line of Vermont, I'm in my happy place. There's something about Vermonters, and it's true for, I think, almost any quote-unquote country people, but mm-hmm. uh, they're funny. Uh, they're, when they don't have anything to say, they don't talk, which I love. <laughs> I, I've, I've been in rooms where nobody said anything for 20 minutes. They just, because no one had anything to say. Um, <laughs> they, they understand hard work. You know, they, they work hard. Uh, they don't ask much. They're very good neighbors. You know, they, they judge people based upon how neighborly you are. If you show up and help people, they don't care who you are outside of that. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of the values of Vermont I've taken with me and, and being there is just, um, it, it, you know, it's all about small towns. My town is where I am today, 930 people. Oh. Um, yeah, there's, we don't have a thousand yet. We're working on it. <laughs> uh, I live right next to the general store. Uh, it's just very, um, it, it's it's a hard thing to find in America these days. Hmm. I mean, it does exist, but it's, it's it's not something that's that easily found. And so that's my happy place. A gem. 
And I need to write down, if you don't have anything to say, you don't say it. I, I have a problem with that sometimes. So. Well. That's my uh, takeaway today. Was the today. old joke about the four-year-old who never spoke, and he finally started talking, and they said, well, why didn't you start talking earlier? And he said, well, I really didn't have anything to say until now. <laughs> you know? I mean, they're, they're the sense of humor. Vermont mm -hmm. stories are great because they have a very, not acerbic, but they have a very wry view of mm -hmm. the world. So I really love it. I can see that about you. Uh, final meal, final drink. What would that look like? Well, Jacques Pepin was asked this question a long time ago, and mm -hmm. he had the best answer, so I'll use his answer. Whatever meal takes the longest amount of time to make. Yep. <laughs> That's the one I want. <laughs> the three-day oh. three coffee, yeah, that's it. That's the one I want. The, the final drink uh, would be an old-fashioned. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's my drink of choice. Classic. Perfect. Chris Kimball, you've been so much fun, an absolute hoot. Everybody, uh, be on the lookout for his cookbook, Cookish, throw it together, and I would advise all of you to get in the kitchen and just forget about it and start cooking. If you are listening to this podcast on Apple's podcast app or Spotify, subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. You can also watch it at ktvl.com and on YouTube. Just search for Offscript with Trish Glose. One more time, Christopher Kimball from Milk Street. Thank you so much. This has been a hoot. My pleasure. We'll have to cook together, but apart. So, yes, how about this? We'll just have a date where you cook a meal and then I'll cook a meal and I won't get in your business and you won't get in my business. That's the way to do it. That Got works. It. Okay. Yeah. Chris Kimball, thank you so much. This has been a, fun, a lot of fun. Take care.